Good to see you all today, and uh, we are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, but today we're going to take a, um, well actually I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'm going to kind of begin in 1 Corinthians, but we're not going to stay there very long. Um, since today is Reformation Reformation Sunday, I'm going to take this occasion to, I'm going to risk boring you in order to hopefully inform you, okay? But let's open our Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll, that's where we're going to pick up next week and we'll go through the, the chapter but I want to look at I want to look at the very first verse. And we're going to kind of look at that. Actually, we're going to kind of look at verse 1 and verse 2. And then we're going to kind of depart 1 Corinthians today. And um, talk about some things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for, for just who you are. God, we have so many things we could thank you for. Uh, things that you bless us with, things that you do for us, things that you provide for us, things that, God, we're not even aware of. Um, Lord, the greatest reason we have to be thankful, it's not because of the things you do, but because of who you are. Father, we just pause today and we thank you. We thank you for your word that's eternal. We ask, God, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds to your word, to your truth, that, God, we would not be a people content to just live in our bubbles, in the confines of the things that we build around us to insulate and isolate ourselves. God, help us to be people that live life with eyes wide open, with hearts that are open, minds that are open, ready to do Your will, ready to be salt and light in the world around us, ready to be used, even to be used up for Your glory. Father, we ask that You would do this. We ask that You would do this for Your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Alright, let's read the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 1, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now I want to talk briefly about these two verses and then we're going to kind of uh, depart from there and go a little bit different direction. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. You know, if you've been around here for any length of time, and especially if you've gone through the Not I But Christ Bible study, which incidentally we're going to be offering again sometime in the uh, probably the first part of the coming year. Uh, it's about an 18-week study. It's pretty long. It's pretty intensive. Um, and, and I know sometimes the last thing people need is another Bible study, Right? Uh, that's really not the answer to uh, life's problems. But, but 
the gospel is the answer. Christ is the answer. His truth is the answer. And so just in a shameless uh, promotion of, of the study that we'll offer in the coming months, uh, I would really encourage you to take the time to go through this study. And it's in this study uh, that you'll we'll talk in depth about some of these things, but this is why I say we often say that God is not looking for an imitation of Christ in the flesh. He's wanting and He's desiring what He's provided for is an impartation of Christ in the Spirit. Now I want to say that again. Christ is not looking for an imitation. God's not looking for an imitation of Christ in the flesh. He wants an impartation of Christ in the Spirit. So when Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, Paul is not saying be good actors and be good pretenders living like a Christian, living like Jesus, acting like Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not calling us to be good imitators, good actors, good pretenders. It's understood from the most basic level that unless we have received the impartation of Christ in the Spirit, we can never truly and eternally be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8.29 says this is our destiny, to be conformed to the image of the Son. And you can't do that through the power of your flesh, through the exertion of your will. So we don't need imitators of Christ. We need people that have been truly transformed, and they have received an impartation of Christ in the Spirit. Paul is saying, walk like I walk, live like I live, out of the resource who is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Anything less than true transformation by the Spirit will be uncovered. It will be. When it's all said and done, will stand before the Lord and all the imitators will be exposed. Those that have truly received an impartation of God's Spirit. Ah, there is glory, joy, unspeakable. Amen? By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. So another way of understanding what Paul is saying is to say, manifest the life of Christ in the same manner that you see me manifest the life of Christ. So we have to have more than an imitation. We must have an impartation of Christ in the Spirit. Then he says in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man... I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. We're going to stop right there, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, we're a non-denominational church, which means, which, which used to mean, and it still does in a lot of ways, you used to hear people say this a lot, oh, you're, you don't, you're not a traditional church. You're one of those non-denominational churches. And I would say, yes, you know, we're not a traditional church. We, we don't have any traditions. That's, <laughs> that's really a mistake, and that's a misunderstanding. Uh, our tradition is non-tradition, but that's relative. What are, we, what are we comparing that to? 
Um, so our tradition is very different than if you went into a Catholic Mass, I grant that, or even the Lutheran service. But to say that just because we're non-denominational, we have no tradition is really erroneous. We better have some traditions. And those traditions better be rooted and grounded in Christ. So this is going to kind of be my segue into what we're going to talk about for a few minutes here. When Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. What, what is Paul actually referring to here? Paul commands them to keep the traditions just as they were delivered to them. He commands the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Let's, let's look at that scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the Apostle Paul writes in this letter, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, or our letters. So these traditions would be the lifestyle and the conduct of the believer, along with the instructions concerning the church and worship and the work of ministry every believer was called to live out. We see this in Ephesians 4. Christ gave gifts to the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why did he give those gifts? For the unity of the faith, for the equipping of the work of the ministry. Who is called to the work of the ministry? We all are. You might not all be called to be a pastor, but every believer is called to the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? The work of ministry is, I'll just make it really simple, it's fulfilling the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. You don't have to have an official title. You don't have to have an ecclesiastical stamp of approval. You've got it from Jesus. That doesn't mean you don't need to study to show yourself approved. That doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. That means you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to be students of the Word. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go today also. And so Paul is saying, he keep the traditions that have been passed down. What are these traditions rooted and grounded in? They're rooted and grounded in Christ. The traditions of the Christian life as instructed by Christ and His apostles in word and in letter culminating in the Scripture. So Jesus didn't have a New Testament that He taught out of. He had what we call the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Actually, their order was a little bit different. It would have actually been from Genesis to Second Chronicles if you look at a Jewish Bible. But the, all the books are still in there. And so our New Testament, which are the letters that the apostles wrote to the churches, and the Gospels that, were, that recorded the life experiences and the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, these, these culminate or have been put together to give us what we call our Bible today. <clears throat> In this book are the traditions that we are to hold to. In this book. Amen? So this is the command of Scripture. Paul says, look, manifest the life of Jesus just as you see me manifest the life of Jesus. And I praise you because you have held, you have kept the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In other words, 
the things that were instructed that came from who? That ultimately came from Christ, that ultimately come from God in His Word. It was the carrying out of the Great Commission's command, teaching them all that I have commanded. What all has God commanded us? It's all revealed right here in the Scripture. So, a manifestation of the life of Christ and an adherence to the traditions or the teachings that are consistent with Christ and who Christ is. And we find that teaching throughout the Scripture, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Amen? Now, now here comes your brief history lesson for the day, okay? How many of you love history? Good. How many, be, be honest, it's no, it's no big deal. How many of you would say, oh my gosh, I hated history when I was in school? Yeah, I mean a lot, look at that, the majority, I mean, and there's probably even more than that. Some of you are just too chicken to raise your hand and admit it. But the reality is probably the vast majority of you hated history and, and maybe still do. But I'm telling you, history is so absolutely important. It's so important that God commanded the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and He gave them feasts. He gave them seven feasts that spanned the calendar year. And basically, there was, I think the longest period of time would have been from Pentecost to Trumpet. So that would have been, let's just say, somewhere around uh, April, May, June, July, August... We had about a five or six month period there where there was not a, a feast that kind of spanned the summertime. But from, from, from our calendar, from September all the way to around April, the year was filled with these feasts. And these feasts represented things. And so God told the children of Israel, do these things. For instance, the Passover. Keep the Passover every year for your children and your children's children so that they don't forget what God has done. What was God telling the children of Israel? Don't forget your history. Don't forget the things that God has done for you. Remember so that you, why? So that you don't repeat the same mistakes your fathers did. But what is the chronic problem with human nature? We forget. Solomon writes this in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Basically, he said, look, it's just, and, and the reason we, we forget and the reason we repeat the same mistakes is because human nature is the same. In time, generations will forget. I told you this before, my father was a World War II vet. He's long gone. There are very few men left who were veterans of World War II. You know what's going to happen one day? One day, all those vets are going to be gone. One day, we're going to be generations removed. It's just going to be a section in our history books and there's not going to be anybody here that really will be able to communicate to us and tell us and what's going to happen. It just will become a footnote in history and we'll forget. Just like everything else in history has, has done. So, now we're talking about the church today. And so, let's just say, um, for simplicity's sake, the church, the New Testament church, that we're a part of today. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. 
right? You wouldn't have come here today. You're a part of the New Testament church. You have an interest in the New Testament church. Whether you're truly born again today or not, I don't know. But you're here, and we call this a church, and we call ourselves the church. And this New Testament church was birthed some 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost, let's say, when the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem. And those 120 came out of that upper room and began to declare the wonderful works of God. And from that day, let's just take that day, from that day until today, the church has been in the earth. God has been working and moving through His church. Now the problem is, here we are, October 27, 2013. 2013 years since the birth of Jesus, supposedly. Give or take, you know, some years. Here we are, and we haven't forgot a lot of things. And you know why we haven't forgot some things? Really, by the grace of God, we haven't forgot some things. But we have forgot, on the other hand, there are a lot of things we have forgot. So if we look at this thumbnail sketch of our church, we see the first, let's just say the first hundred years of the church. In the first hundred years of the church, the church looked very different than what the church looks like today. It operated differently. It looked differently. Now, The center of the church, the reason for the existence of the church, the truth that was foundational to the church is not different. The important things were not different. So as time marched on, though, things began to change. So somewhere around 315 A.D., I think that date's accurate, there was a guy named Constantine. Constantine won a great battle, and he saw a vision. He saw this cross, and he believed that that vision gave him a divine mandate to go forth and conquer. And so Constantine goes forth and he conquers. And he decides that everyone in his kingdom needs to be a Christian. Might sound like a great idea at first glance, right? The only problem is with Constantine, he didn't really care what you thought about that. It was either become a Christian or lose your life. So guess what happened? The Christian church exploded, right? I mean, boy, lots of people became Christians because the alternative wasn't so good to them, or, you know. And so, what we see if we look at history, by the time we get into the 300s and the 400s, the Roman Empire is using religion to capture and hold together its, its empire. Around 500, something happened, Rome fell, barbarian hordes come in, and from about 500 to 1500, there was a period called the Dark Ages. It wasn't because they didn't have electricity either, okay? So what happened when 
the barbarian hordes came in, they just kind of ransacked Europe and they burned all the libraries and they, books weren't important to them and they were kind of illiterate pagans anyways and so they just went through and they just kind of trashed everything. And knowledge became very concentrated in very small areas in various parts of Europe. So if we were born, say today, say if, if we were born in around 600 A.D., if our parents weren't extremely wealthy or powerful, we just happened to be born in some village, some no-name village in some, you know, little rinky-dink province, uh, we're, we're going to be born into poverty. We're going to be born to parents who don't know how to read and write. We're, we're going to be born and we're going to be dependent upon some guy who's going to make us work like, Slaves literally in order to just barely be able to survive. And that's our subsist. That's how we're going to live our lives. And if you make it, listen, if you make it to age 40 or 45, you would be considered a very old person. By the time you hit 40 back in that day, you were like ancient and lucky to be alive. We can't even comprehend that idea today. So for about five, actually for about a thousand years, this is the way Europe was. Really a little less than, really for about 500 years. Then things began to, uh, so all this time the, the, the Roman church, the Roman empire kind of morphs into the Roman church. And instead of using military power to control its people, it's now using... Religion. And the Roman church, and listen, I'm not anti-Catholic, okay? Don't get, I'm just telling you, his, this is just history, okay? Just the way it is. I have a lot of, half my family's Catholic. Uh, I get along really good with Father Lonnie, and, and so don't take this as an anti-Catholic. I'm just, I'm giving you history. This is reality, right? So, so the Roman church is using its political power and political influence with religion, with the guys that are in power, the kings. So at that time, Europe, everybody's got a kingdom. It wasn't like today. It wasn't just the queen of England. I mean, every country had a king or a queen. That's, that's the way the Europe was divided up. And the Catholic Church was kind of the big thing above everything that, that kind of held it all together and, and kind of ran it all. They put the political pressure on. They had the money. They had the influence. So this went on for about a thousand years. And in about 1320, there was a guy born. His name was John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe lived from 1320 to 1384. His claim to fame is this. John Wycliffe said, you know what? The masses, the masses of illiterate people need to have the Bible. We need to translate the Bible from Latin, which is what the, the Roman Catholic Church used, from Latin to the to the language of the people. He was from England, and so he wanted to translate the Bible into English. The year of his death saw the completion of what was called the Wycliffe Bible. John Wycliffe died of a stroke, and this was the cry of his opponents. The jewel of the clergy has become the toy of the laity. Talking about the Bible. So what, what, the, what the clergy said, what the hierarchy of the church said, the laity, they're a bunch of illiterate, stupid people. 
they, they don't deserve a Bible. They don't know what to do with the Bible. The Bible is too holy for them. It's too precious for them. Wycliffe said no. They thought so much of John Wycliffe that they dug his bones up in 1415 and they burned them to ashes and sprinkled them in a the river because he was considered a heretic because he wanted to give the Bible to everyday folk like you and I. Then in 1369, there was another guy born. His name was John Huss. He was, he was born in Bohemia. He was a good old Czech, right? John Huss is called the father of the Reformation. He opposed the corruption of the Catholic Church as well as the military crusades. And he, he, he opposed things like you shouldn't make people pay money to get their relatives out of purgatory. I don't find that in the Scripture. I don't find it in the Scripture that you men have the power to tell someone whether they're going to go to hell or heaven or purgatory, determine how long they're going to stay somewhere. Well, they didn't like John very much, and they burned John at the stake in 1415. And he refused to compromise the truth. And he said, I'm sticking with the Bible. Your traditions that you have adopted are not... He was doing what Paul told us to do. Keep the traditions. Not the traditions of a man-made system, but keep the traditions of the Scripture. He said, let's go back to the Scripture. The Scripture doesn't teach what you guys are enforcing. So they burned him at the stake. 1483, there was a guy born named Martin... Luther. He lived until 1546. He's probably the most well-known. And Thursday, you know why this is called Reformation Sunday? Because it's the Sunday before Halloween. You know what Halloween is famous for? Well, I know what you think it's famous for. Ghosts and goblins and pumpkins and candied apples and stuff like that, right? Dressing up in costumes. We think that's what Halloween is famous for. But the reality is... All Hallows' Eve was a sacred holiday in the church. And on All Hallows' Eve, October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed up 95 points on the door of Wittenberg Castle. And he says to the Catholic Church, I challenge you to have a discussion about what you're teaching and what you're making people do and how it lines up with the Scripture. They didn't like that either. Now, Martin was not martyred for his faith. For instance, one of the things, I'll just give you two examples. I'll give you, for time's sake, I'll give you one example. Of, of, um, there was a guy named uh, John Tetzel, and John Tetzel was the fundraiser for the Vatican. And they needed to, to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, and they needed money, and they were trying to figure out how in the world they're going to get the money to do this. And they came up with a marketing scheme, and they said, you know what, if we convince people that the only way to get their relatives out of purgatory and into heaven is that they pay money, and the more money they pay, the faster they'll get out, we'll raise a lot of money. And so here is your first commercial jingle that I know of. In, in Johann Tietzel, this was his jingle. It was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He's pretty creative. I mean, the guy was like ahead of his time. I mean, he, they did it. They raised, they raised millions of dollars 
by just, that's how they did it. And so Martin Luther, put he actually put that, he said, he, he put in his 95 thesis, point 28 was, I can't believe you guys are sending Tietzel out with his advertising slogan, defrauding people. That's not even scriptural. How can you in good conscience do this? And this was the kind of thing. So this is really October 34th, 1517. That's when the Reformation was birthed. So Wycliffe and Huss and guys before him who had kind of laid a foundation, it was when Luther nailed that thing to the door of Wittenberg Castle that we could just say it all broke loose. 1509, there was a man born named John Calvin. He lived from 1509 to 1564. Now, Martin Luther was in Germany. And the Reformation really started in earnest there in Germany, but it wasn't confined to Germany. So Calvin was, was a French theologian. And he was in Switzerland. And Calvin is in Switzerland. And he's, at the same time, a lot of this is going on. This is after, in, in around 1534, Calvin is in earnest calling for biblical reform and renewal in the Catholic Church. See, all these guys were part of the Catholic Church because that's the only church that really existed. They, they controlled everything. And so all these guys were calling for reform. And, and he actually was forced into hiding. They were trying to kill him, but he, he got away. He goes to Geneva, and he's living in Geneva there. And, and they create this community there. And, and, and really, he was instrumental in sustaining the work of the Protestant Reformation outside of Germany. He had some guys. He had one guy in particular who came to see him and, and learned under him about structure of the church and different things like that. Because remember, a lot of these guys, all they knew was the Catholic Church. This guy's name was John Knox. Now, how many of you have ever heard of John Knox before? If you know a lot about American history, you will know the name John Knox because John Knox was very instrumental in shaping the thought of the people that ultimately came to America and founded this nation we call the United States of America. So John Knox is born in 1514. He's a Scottish clergyman. He founded the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, of Scotland, and he led the Reformation in Scotland. He stood up to the British throne, and he wrote sermons, and he preached sermons, and, and Queen Mary or Princess Mary would call him in and say, Hey, John, what are you doing? He said, I'm telling the truth. That's what I'm doing. And she questioned him one time. She said, Do you, are you telling me that you believe that men can revolt against the rule of the throne? And he said, if the throne has revolted against the rule of God, if the throne is not under the rule of God and is demanding that men do things contrary to God, then yes, we must. He, he led this reformation in Scotland, his teachings were influential in shaping the thought of a group of people we call the pilgrims. Thanksgiving's coming up. So we're going to have Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, what is it? November 29th, Thursday. You know why we're going to have Thanksgiving dinner? We're commemorating that dinner the pilgrims had with the Indians. At Pl- you know, they're at Plymouth. They landed at Plymouth. And, and supposedly, the Indians and the pilgrims all got together, had a big feast. The Indians taught them, remember, you all learned this in school. Do you all still learn this in school? The Indians taught them how to plant corn. 
how to put fish in the ground and put the seed on top of that and all that. They used to teach that in school. Well, those pilgrims, we call them pilgrims, not because of John Wayne, pilgrim. No. See, some of you don't even know who John Wayne is. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. The generations are moving on and we're forgetting all the important things, right? Pretty soon, no one's going to know who John Wayne is. Pilgrims, they were Puritans. They were Puritans. Well, who were the Puritans? The Puritans came into being in the 16th and 17th century. That means from the 1500s to the 1600s. In in the British Isles there, the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock were Puritans. They were born out of the Reformation, specifically the teachings of John Calvin and John Knox, and they wanted to reform the church in England similar to what had taken place on the European continent. But the queen and the king said, no deal. We're staying in control. And the pilgrims, or the Puritans, guess what some of them did? They boarded a ship called the Mayflower, and they sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, and they landed at Plymouth, Massachusetts, and they started a colony. And guess what? Here we are today. In no small measure because of them. Well, who were these guys? Well, today they might teach you in school they were fleeing for economic reasons or they wanted to persecute native uh, peoples uh, and destroy the environment. But the real reason they came is because they wanted to live and preach the gospel is, is why they came. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Because I'll tell you why. I'm telling you this because this is your heritage. I don't have anything against the Catholic Church. But there's a reason why we're not Catholic. And the Reformation was was not so much about we don't want to be Catholic anymore. What the Reformation was about was we want to obey the Bible. So I'm going to give you five points of the Reformation that were basically the pillars of the Reformation. They're called the five solas of the Reformation. The word sola is a Latin word that means alone. Are you tracking with me? The first is this, by Scripture alone, sola scriptura. By Scripture alone. Paul writes to us in 2 Timothy concerning the Scripture. What's he tell us? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So this is a teaching, this is a truth that says the Bible is the only inspired Word of God. The Bible is our authority by which we live. The Bible and the Bible alone ultimately determines everything. Everything we do in life, personally, corporately, culturally, politically, the belief was that it should be submitted to the Scripture. And the Scripture is the final authority for all things. Now, why did the... Why did the Roman Catholic Church have a problem with this? They had a problem with this because the traditions of the church 
the edicts of the Pope, the, the bulls that were issued, the, the papers that were issued by the Pope, they were equal with Scripture. So if the Pope said, your relative is going to go to purgatory until you pay X amount of dollars, it didn't really matter what the Scripture said. That was the tradition of the church. These reformers said, look, well, all we're asking is that you let go of these traditions that are unscriptural. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's make the Bible our sole and final authority for all things. Not what a man says because he sits in a certain chair or has been given a certain sola scriptura, the authority of Scripture, by Scripture alone. Another thing that this says is that the Bible requires no interpretation outside of itself. You've heard me say this before. The best interpretation for the Bible is the Bible itself. The Bible will interpret itself. It will. Now, that doesn't mean you don't use commentaries, you can't learn from commentaries, but I'm saying those commentaries need to be based on what the Scripture says. They need to be pointing you back to the Scripture, telling you, teaching you what the Scripture itself says, not because a guy named Joseph Smith saw an angel and with a couple of golden plates, and now we're going to write a new book that's equal to Scripture called the Book of Mormon. The doctrine called Sola Scriptura says we can't do that. We can't do that because the Bible is complete in itself, and it is our authority. So no tradition of man supersedes the Scripture. The second one is this, by faith alone. By faith alone. It's the teaching that we are justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Well, can we find that in the Bible? Absolutely. Let's go to Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, apart from the deeds of the law. Verse 5, I mean chapter 5, verse 1, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can go to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 11, and Paul kind of nails it right here and seals it up. But that no one, Galatians 3.11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So by faith alone, we're not justified by our works. In our works, we don't do our works in order to be justified. We do works because we are justified. Or we don't do works in order to become saved. We do works or we manifest works because we are saved. So the simplest way, the analogy I always use, we don't put peaches on the tree to make it a peach tree. The peach, the tree produces peaches, therefore it is a peach tree. If the tree never produced peaches, could I say, well, maybe it's not a peach tree. It's producing these little hard brown things. And you break them open, there's just this yellow stuff inside. That's a peach, right? No, that's an acorn. You got an oak tree there, buddy. It's not a peach tree. The fruit proves it's not what you think it is. So we don't put peaches on a tree to make it a peach tree. The tree produces peaches because it is a peach tree. We don't do works in order to become saved. We do works because we are saved. By faith alone. The third is this, by grace alone. 
This is teaching that salvation comes by divine grace or unmerited favor. Oftentimes you hear this, the word grace means unmerited favor. I didn't do anything to deserve, to earn, to receive God's grace. It is by grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, a very familiar scripture for us. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If I'm paying money and doing good works to get myself or my loved one into heaven, is that grace? It's not grace. It's works. And the reformer said, that's not scriptural. That's not what the Bible teaches. This is what Luther found out. Luther's praying one day, studying the Bible, and he gets his revelation. It's like, I've been leading people astray. I've been getting people to do this. It's not even scriptural. By grace alone. Through Christ alone. This is the fourth point. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is only one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. Amen, church? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't honor Mary, that Mary's not blessed. She is blessed. The Bible says, calls her blessed. But Mary is not our vehicle to get to Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings us to God. He is the way to God. He is the one who made a way where there was no way. It is through Christ alone that we are saved. It is through Christ alone that we are able to come to the Father. It is through Christ alone. There is no other mediator between God and man. So by Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone... Why do we do all of this? For the glory of God alone. To God be the glory alone. So this says that all that we do and all that God has done ultimately is for the glory of God. It's not for the glory of man. It's not to raise up a name or a movement or anything other than to lift up and to exalt and to magnify the name of God, that His name, above all names, would be glorified. That men would not look to another man or to another system or to anything else and give glory to it for what it has accomplished, but we would understand that there is no glory that goes anywhere except to God. To God alone be all the glory. I deserve no glory because I'm saved. Because it is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to God alone be the glory. And you see that what was happening was there was a lot of glory going to a religious system and to other men. Men who were elevated and they had positions and they were given positions for political reasons and for various reasons, but it wasn't for the glory of God. And men of God 
just finally said, this is wrong. This is so wrong that we are willing to put our lives on the line in order to bring about a change, a reformation, a reforming of the church. Because the only hope for humanity is God. It is in the scripture alone. It is in Christ alone. It is through faith alone. It is by grace alone. It is for God's glory alone. And so these men literally laid down their lives for the cause of Christ and for the truth of the gospel. That is the end of your history lesson. So let's come to today. Where are we today? And I don't know, we probably have various beliefs about the return of Jesus. Let's all agree on one thing. He will return. There's no doubt about that. Now, whether he's going to come today or not, we can, we can talk about that. Or tomorrow, or... The, re the reality is, we don't know when he's going to return. We just know he will return. But just for the sake of helping me out, in, in what I'm trying to communicate to you. Let's just pretend, okay? Let's just all agree to pretend. that. Let, let's just say that Christ is not going to return for a long period of time, the way we understand time. There's no long period of time when it comes to God, right? God's not constrained by time or space. So we're talking about things that happened a 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. Listen, God, the way we counted out those 1,500 years, for God, it's like, it's in the present. I, I can't explain that to you, but just understand, God doesn't see and, and is not constrained by time the way we are. So let's say in our understanding of time, the return of Christ is going to be in the distant future. What will history, just like we've kind of taken just a few moments and we've done a thumbnail sketch of history from the time the church was birthed back uh, after the resurrection of Christ to, to present day. So we did a thumbnail sketch of the last 213 years. I mean, 2013 years. A hundred years from now, I wonder what history will say about the church in our day. Now, why do I ask that question? I ask that question because, listen to me, church, this is important. Because that's how we ought to be living our lives. We ought to be living our lives in, in, in one respect as if today's our last day, but we also ought to be living our lives in, 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 a, in this respect, that we are stepping stones, creating a legacy for those that are, that are going to come after us. And what kind of stepping stone have we left, and what kind of legacy have we left? Now, I read something the other day that says if you read an hour every day, a certain subject, in seven years, you will be considered an international expert on that subject. Now, I, based on that, I, with pretty fair certainty, could say I, I'm just about an international expert on the church, though I wouldn't really, I, I wouldn't really say that. I kind of make it my habit to study the church, to read about the church. So I'm reading a book right now. It's a book that I would encourage every one of you to invest the time and the money to go and buy. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. 
the great evangelical recession by a guy named John S. Dickerson. Never heard of the guy. Doesn't really matter. But what the guy writes in this book is what I have believed to be happening, though I couldn't necessarily formulate it or articulate it and put it all together the way he did. He did it. But, you know, for the last, probably for the last, uh, at least the last seven years, I've been talking about this in some form or some fashion. The Great Evangelical Recession. Six factors that will crash the American church and how to prepare. You read that book, the first half of that book, it's pretty, it's pretty dire. It's pretty, but it, I believe it's true. So here's the deal. Here's why I talked to you about history today. Here's why I'm telling you about this. Christians are notorious for living in the moment. Living in their bubble. Not really, especially the American church, American Christians. I think this is something that, that history will say of our church and our time if we make it that long before the Lord comes back. They're going to say those people were just really full of themselves. They made the gospel, they made church, they made Christianity all about themselves. And they forgot what it was really all about. Now here's the good news. Since the beginning of time, God has always had a remnant of people that by grace he did not allow to forget. I mean, just the fact that we survived the Dark Ages, that thousand-year period of Europe, uh, is really no less than a miracle. But we did survive, and we survived because of God. Now I hear people today saying, how is the church going to make it? How are we going to survive? And I'm not just I'm talking about the local church. I'm, I'm talking about Christianity. If you really begin to look at what's happening in America to Christianity, it should cause all of us to be alarmed. It should not allow us to come into our churches on Sunday morning and, and be upset because the temperature wasn't right, the music wasn't right, I didn't go there for a history lesson. I just really, you know, uh, or whatever, you know, it is that we might, and we understand, look, what, what is the point of what we're doing here? The point of what we're doing here is not just about what happens here. The point is, what are you going to do with your life? Do you know how old Jeremiah was when God called him? I'm talking to you young people. He was young. Matter of fact, he was so young, he said, God, no one's going to listen to me. Because I'm too young. Do you know how old Daniel was when he was carried away captive to Babylon? More than likely, Daniel was just an adolescent boy. If he was even 13 yet, it, he, he was probably, you know, anywhere from 9 to 13 years old when he was carried away captive. Maybe younger, I don't know. You know how we can know that? Because they didn't kill him. He was young enough for them to take back, and what did they do? They put him in school. They did something before they put him in school. I won't tell you what they did, but uh, it wasn't real nice. They made it where Daniel could never have children. And they put him in school, and they trained Daniel in the ways of the Babylonians. But you know what Daniel did? Daniel, this young man, this, this boy, young people, listen to me. Though he was trained up in the ways of the Babylonians, though he was commanded by the king to eat their food, Daniel said, no, I'm not going to do it. And he was able to 
by the grace of God, he not only maintained his faith, but he learned everything that they taught him, and he became basically second in command of that kingdom. God used him that way. You know why God used him that way? Because he had a heart that was surrendered to the Lord. Yes, it was the grace of God. But I'm telling you what, a heart surrendered. So here we are today in the 21st century in a country called America. And the church that we are a part of looks vastly different than the church of the first century. And there's nothing wrong with that because we live in a different world in a sense. But there are some things that should not be different. The truth that we stand upon, that we live by, that we are willing to die by should not be any different. It is not any different. The traditions that we hold to should not be the traditions of men. They should be the traditions that are found and reinforced in the Scripture. And the traditions that are not found and reinforced here, that are contrary to this, we need to be willing to lay them down and sacrifice them and and get rid of them. And so today, we've turned church into this place where people come to be entertained. And they want to go out and they want to feel good about themselves. And they want to feel good about what they hear, what they've experienced. And then we come back and we do it all again. And pastors and church staff and church leaders get on this treadmill that they can't get off of because now we've got to keep the people happy. We've got to keep them coming back because if they're not coming back, they're not giving their money. If they're not giving their money, then we can't keep the machine going. What Jesus died for, what Jesus established was not for the machine. It was so that the gospel could be taken to the world and God's eternal plan of the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world could be carried out and brought about not for man's glory but for the ultimate glory of God. So when we come in here, whether you're young or whether you're old, God says you're here to be equipped for the work of ministry. And we've created these myths in our culture that says unless they're a certain age, unless they're a certain type, they're not fit, they're not qualified for the work of ministry. Parents, don't believe that lie. Begin to train up your children right now. If you're behind, catch up. But the worst thing you can do, parents, is is tell them what they need to do and you not do it yourself. The worst thing we can do is to go out into the world and tell the world what they need to do and we not do it ourselves. Discipleship begins at home. Discipleship begins in the church. We're not here for the world to come in here and hear my preaching, because that's not going to happen. Let me give you some statistics. I'll bore you some more, okay? I'm breaking all the rules, right? Whose rules are those? You need to know the truth. So here is a comprehensive survey done 
of 10,000 people. What was, this was the question, what was responsible for you coming to Christ in this church? 3%, I had a special need. 3%, I just walked in. 6%, I like the minister. 1%, I visited there. Huh, 1%, I visited there. You know what we bank everything on in the American church? Visitors. You know, we, we, we spend time and resources trying to figure out how to get visitors to come into our door. Yet, survey shows only 1% of the people that come to a church and get saved were a visitor. They just happened to come in. 5% like the Bible class. Half of 1% attended a gospel meeting. I'm not sure what that is. Maybe that's a tent meeting. I don't know. 3% liked the programs. That's another thing. We're program-driven. We think programs are going to be our answer to everything. And you know what? It was for several decades. But you know what? It's not anymore. Here's the winner if we were playing Family Feud. 79% of people said, I came to church and I came to Christ because a friend or a relative invited me. The 21st century church needs the entire body of Christ to take evangelism seriously like the first century church did. The first century church didn't silently model or occasionally invite people. When the persecution started in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is the death of Stephen. And Saul, that we know as Paul the Apostle, was standing there holding the coats of the people, the men that were stoning Stephen to death. And after that stoning of Stephen, a great persecution arose. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles. And the devout men carried Stephen to his grave. And it goes on, it says, verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Acts 8, verse 1 and 4. They were scattered and they went everywhere preaching the word. Acts eleven nineteen and 21 recounts it again. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen... They traveled to Cyprus, they traveled to Phoenicia, they traveled to Antioch, preaching the word. They preached only to Jews. God would correct that very soon. And it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So when it says, I want to draw your attention to this, They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Here's what I want you to take from that. It would be like saying they were scattered, all the people except Billy Graham and uh, uh, all the big-name televangelists and people responsible for bringing thousands to the Lord. All those guys stayed in Jerusalem. It was the no-name little people that went out, and the no-name little people went and they preached the gospel 
And many people came to faith. The exception to the rule is that you have an evangelistic meeting and thousands get saved. We do see that recorded in the Bible. But that's not how we came to be where we are today. You're not sitting in this room because of those large evangelistic meetings for the most part. Maybe some of you are. But I'm going to tell you why we're here. We're here for the most part because faceless, nameless Christians went out into the world and they preached the gospel everywhere they went and sometimes it cost them their life. And they didn't worry about whether they were going to be made fun of or thought of as being weird. Because in America, if you're not cool and you're not with it, then, and, and, and here's the reality, Christianity is no longer cool and it's not with it anymore. That's a fact. That means that as we go out into the world and we preach the gospel and we live the gospel, we're going to face increasing opposition. What are we going to do about that? Are we just going to wilt like a little flower in front of a blowtorch? Are we going to stand up and are we going to be the salt and the light and affect our communities? Young people, are you going to be courageous enough to be made fun of, to be called names? Do you understand the magnitude, the seriousness of the issue that we're talking about here today? The gospel is a life and death issue. The church has lost that. We've lost our sense of desperation. The gospel is nothing but a social issue now. The gospel is whether I go to a big church or a little church. It's whether I'm being accepted or rejected. We don't see the gospel any longer as a life or death issue. We've politicized it. We've socialized it. We've done everything to it except what Jesus told us to do, and that's to preach it and to teach it, no matter what the cost. So, pastor, you're going to preach and teach the gospel. What if everyone leaves your church? What if they do? What if they do? I can't do anything about that. Young person, you go out and you start living the gospel at school, chances are you're going to face some opposition. You have to decide what you're going to do about that. Can you love in the face of opposition? Can you love in the face of persecution? Can you be consistent with your witness? Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. You can't do that. Listen to me, this is real important. I don't care whether you're young or whether you're old. You can't do that in yourself. And this is where, as Christians, we need to get on our face and cry out to God that He would change and transform our hearts by the power of His Holy Spirit. Because you might get all excited about Jesus and go out there. You know, we used to do this, take kids to camp. And you could almost, it was like clockwork. You could take them to camp and I'm telling you what, I'm not a prophet, but I could prophesy to you almost to the day of, of, of when the zeal and the fire was going to fade away and they just go. And, and so, you know, we just kind of keep this thing, well, we just need to keep them motivated. No, we don't need to keep them motivated. We need to pray through and, and believe God for a transformation, a conversion to take place in their heart. They don't need more motivation. They need the power of the Spirit to change them on the inside. 
Because that's the only way they're going to be able to withstand what's going to come at them from the outside. And that's true whether you're 16 or whether you're 66 or 106. And the church has lost her desperation for the Spirit of God to change the hearts of men. We think it's going to be done through good preaching and through nice programs and through fun events. No, that's not going to change anybody. That might keep kids and keep people in church, but it's not going to change their hearts. And eventually, the studies show they're going to leave church. And they're, they're not going to come back until something happens in their heart. And I'm saying, I can't speak for anyone else. I can only speak for Christ Fellowship Church. For Christ Fellowship Church, we need to become desperate to see a heart transformation take place, not only in ourselves, but in the world around us. We need to become desperately serious about the gospel. We need to see ourselves, each one of us, as evangelists that God would send out to preach and to live the gospel, to be salt and light in the world, that we would stop this foolish notion that we're to attract them to our building and trick them into believing into Jesus. No, we need to go out and do what Jesus said to do. Here's my challenge to you, and I know I've got to close. Y'all know I have a lot more to say, right? I do. But here's my challenge to you, because I think you get where I'm coming from. I think you understand. So let me read one more scripture to you, and I'm going to give you my challenge. This is the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Listen. I grew up, I cut my teeth on a charismatic Pentecostal about as weird and as wild as you can get. You know, a lot of people don't like me anymore because I'm not as weird and as wild as they want me to be. Because you, know you know what I discovered as I read and studied the Bible? It ain't about being weird and wild. And we want to make the Holy Spirit something that gives us the license to be weird and wild? Let me just tell you very simply why God gave you the Holy Spirit, why He gave the church the Holy Spirit. He gave the church the Holy Spirit so that you would have the power to be witnesses. Not so that you'd have the power to fall on the floor, get stuck to the wall, um, do this or do that. No. That is pure foolishness. Let me say that again for the tape, in case anybody wants to hear that. That is pure foolishness, and that will not save anybody. That will not transform anybody. And we've spent decades having a circus in the church building while the world's going to hell on the outside. And we wonder why our nation's falling apart. Listen, God gave the Holy Spirit because He wants you to have the power to be a witness. That means you need to go out into this world. And I'm not saying go out there and be obnoxious. I'm saying go out and live the gospel. Learn how to love people. Learn how to talk to people. Learn how to listen to people. Pray with people. Talk with them. Love, with, love them. Cry. Let them cry on your shoulder. Be a person that, 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 that they feel safe coming to because they don't know who else to go to. Because they might not know why, but it's because Christ is in you. 
That's why they feel safe with you because of Jesus, not because of you. You don't get the glory. He gets the glory. I can't give that to you. Only God can. You need to become desperate that God would do a heart work, a work in your heart of transformation to make you and give you the power to be the witness that He's called you to be. You should be being discipled so that you can make disciples. And though this is part of discipleship, this, ain't, this is not how we get discipled. This is part of how we get discipled. Who is, here's my challenge, who is the friend or the family member or the acquaintance that God has put in your life? I'm not telling you to go out and reach a thousand, a hundred, or even ten. I'm just saying, who is the one person God has placed in your life? You say, well, I don't know. Well, pray about it. Ask God, God, who is the person you've placed in my life that God would want you to influence through the power of the gospel? How are you going to do that? That's going to be how you live your life in front of them, with them, around them. It's going to be how you talk to them. It's going to be how you listen to them. It's going to be the fact that they know that you are a Christian and you're not ashamed of it and you're not afraid to say it. You're not obnoxious. You're not judgmental. You're not condemning. You're a person who loves, a person that they feel safe with. That's not going to happen overnight. That's not going to happen because you went out on Saturday and knocked on doors and gave someone a track. That's not discipleship. That's not even effective evangelism. It's about relationship. Who is the person, if you sincerely pray and you say, God, who is the person that you want me to establish a relationship with, or I already have a relationship with, that I can begin to influence with the gospel? Ask God that sincerely. And then ask God and ask me (laughs) and ask for help to teach you how to live out the gospel. To make everything you do centered in the gospel. We need to learn this as a church. I need to learn this. You need to learn this. This is how we're going to impact our community. This is how we're going to make Taylor a gospel-centered community. It begins right here. It begins right here. It's got to happen out there. Not here, out there. I'm assuming that it's happening here because you're here, right? So we need to keep that going. But it doesn't end at these four walls. It's got to happen out there. Amen? Let's all stand. We need millions of individual believers functioning as evangelists in their own lives. Each one not reaching thousands, but each one reaching one or two. If everyone in this room would purpose to do that, and we would purpose to reach one or two, I'm not saying one or two a week. If you just said, you know what, God, if you'll just give me one or two for the rest of my life, you, you'll be amazed at what, how many more than one or two you'll reach. But let's just start with something simple. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we just we come before you today And we ask that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, I know we've talked about a lot of things, and maybe some of it seems irrelevant for some people. But if we don't know where we've come from, God, it's going to be very difficult for us 
to navigate where we want to go. And Lord, I pray that you would put it upon the hearts of your people, that we would not be content to be ignorant or uninformed. God, we have a history, we have a past. It's glorious. It's a history and a past and a path that you have ordained before the foundations of the world. None of us here in this building today are here by accident. God, before you said, let there be light, you knew that we would be here. I pray, Father, that you would put a burden, a desire upon our hearts to make you and to make your gospel known. Lord, it needs to be known in our own hearts first before it can be known anywhere else. And if there's anyone here, God, that has never come to know Christ, they've never come to know Christ as their Savior, Lord, I pray today they would come to know Him that way. They would cry out from the depths of their heart, from a heart of faith, to be saved. Right now, right where you are, And that we wouldn't content with just being saved and knowing that we're going to heaven, but God, that you would put it upon our hearts to be a witness. Lord, if we're fearful, if we're indifferent, if we're apathetic, then God, I pray that you would move on our hearts by your Spirit. I pray that you would break our hearts, disrupt our hearts, inconvenience our hearts. Whatever you need to do, God, that by your Spirit, you would give us the power to be witnesses. That we would stop the foolishness, God, that we have entered into over the past decades. And we would go back to the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of the scripture. And we would do what you commanded us to do. We would go into this world and we would make disciples. Each and every one of us. We're not too young and we're not too old. And I challenge any who would think they're too young And I would challenge any who would think they're too old. And I would challenge any who would say it doesn't apply to me. Because it applies to all of us if we name the name of Jesus. And count ourselves as a follower of Him. God, don't let men be moved by the mere words of men. I pray that we would be moved by the power of Your Spirit. And I pray that You would do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, give the Lord a good hand. Give Him praise. Give Him glory. God bless each and every one of you. Maybe you prayed that prayer. Maybe you said in your heart, I need to know Jesus, and I don't believe that I do. And you want to talk more about that? You want to pray about that? Please come. I would love to talk with you and pray with you. If you're here and you have any type of special need, I want to say this before anybody leaves. I want us to pray for Cindy Whaling. Cindy, called me this morning. And Cindy's battling lung cancer. It's moved to her brain. She didn't get good uh, results from uh, MD Anderson. The chemo did not work. Uh, It didn't advance, but it didn't shrink. And she's having some uh, difficulty with her lungs, and she's going to have some aggressive lung treatment to pull the fluid off of her lungs this week. She's going to be in the hospital for about a week in Georgetown. And I want us to pray for her today. I want us to pray for Black. Her husband, Black, Cindy, is praying more for his salvation than for her healing. I want to pray for both. Amen? So can we just, before you do anything else, can we take a moment and just lift her in black up?
Father, I, I just thank you for Cindy. I thank you for her faith. God, she's been such an inspiration. Just so rock solid in so many ways. And Father, I know she's trusting you, but I also know, God, that she is feeling the press. And Lord, though she may not say that she is fearful, she, Lord God, is being shaken to the very core of her being. And Father, we just pray right now, first of all, that you would just take her right where she is and that you would just flood her very being with the peace that passes understanding, that whatever shaking that's taking place, God, that's, that's tormenting, that's not of you, that's, that's not the good kind of shaking that you want to do in our lives, but Lord, it would be a shaking that the enemy would use to bring fear and torment. God, I pray right now your peace that passes understanding over her and over black. Lord, she knows who her hope is. She knows who her healer is. She knows who her Savior is, and I thank you for that. And God, we agree together. We call upon you today as a body of Christ, as her body, as her church family. We call upon you today, God, and we ask that you would heal her in the name of Jesus, that you would strengthen her, that you would give the doctors wisdom. God, you could touch her in an instant and she'd be healed right now. God, we know you can do that. We ask that you would do that. We just commit her into your hands and we pray for the salvation of her husband, God. We pray for his peace. We pray, God, that you would just do a miraculous work in this man as he walks with his wife in this very, very difficult time. Father, bless them. Bless the doctors and all that care for her. Lord, just put it upon our hearts not only to pray for her, but just to let her know, God, that she's in our prayers, she's in our thoughts, that we love her and that we're supporting her as she walks through this and that she's not alone. In Jesus' name, amen.